What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Wait, is it CC for Italian? Not CC's pizza. Oh, wait. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like yes in Italian is the same. I honestly do not know. Wait, let me check. Here, let me look. Record it. <laughs> yeah, it's C. It's, it's like S-I? Mm-hmm. Well, we're going to have some fun today. C, like we normally do. The enthusiasm in your voice, you're like, yeah, it's going to be fun. And then it's like, no. <laughs> well, I know I've said it in the um, in the chat side of Clubhouse, but we're going to be doing something a little bit different today where I actually use this platform to upload some content to my podcast. Um, Tobias isn't on stage right now and Tobias has actually been on a podcast before but apparently he, he gave me the idea but it never really sat with me until it just popped in my head today because I was trying to figure out how I was going to get some content out there regarding Rome and I usually like to do uh, podcasts in the form of just conversation and then I was like we have these conversations all the time on Clubhouse why not just turn that into a podcast episode and then I realized I could actually do that and hopefully if you're listening to this um, while you're driving or uh, working out or doing some um, odds and ends you'll know this became a podcast look at that (laughs) (laughs) And then just to make sure we have a name for the voices that we're hearing today, um, there's my voice. Hi, Miles. You should know this voice already. And then there's two other voices joining me, and I'm sure there'll be a host of other of host of other voices joining me as well. So um, why don't you guys just uh, say a name to match your voice? I mean, I know who you are, but, you know, podcast listeners out there might not. Angie, go first. Hey, guys. It's me. I'm Angie. Um, Thanks for listening and hope you enjoy. There we go. Hello. My name is... No, I'm just joking. (laughs) Hey, it's Nigel. 
can't wait to have this discussion. Dive into into Rome, shall we? Are we all want to accord with that? Yes, yes. Okay. I'm Gucci so, with it. You, you Gucci with it, Angie? Uh-huh. Wait, Gucci was, that a, was that a tie to Italian? <laughs> I mean, that's what I say like in my normal life, but yeah, it fits more for now. So yeah. <laughs> should we start should we start with the men's draw or the women's draw? Uh I think men's. the women. Uh, there was some confusion there. I think I think Nigel said men and women, and Angie said women. Should we do women first? Yeah, because I, like- I still have like a little bit of sourness in my mouth for the men's <laughs> result today. So I'm just like, eh. I get it. Oh, Comple- understood. Completely get it. Un- understood. So um, let's just let's just paint the picture a little bit for what we were looking at. Um, number one seed and world number one, Iga Swiatek, was definitely in this draw. Followed by, uh, I don't know if Paula Bedosa is currently the world number two, but I think at one point she was, and she was number two seed at this tournament. Followed by Arena Sabalenka, Maria Sakari, Kontavit, Pliskova, Danielle Collins, and Garbine Muguruza. Those are the top eight seeds. So it was a pretty stacked event to say this was a Masters 1000 event and the last Masters 1000 event before the French Open. So um, expectations were high for this to be a pretty exciting tournament. It's yet to be determined in this conversation if we all agree and we can all touch and agree if it actually was an exciting tournament, but <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> so let's just kind of take it. Let's just kind of take it uh, through the women's draw section by section to kind of just uh, take out what we thought was interesting in the tournament. Um, and we can start from the head of the draw with Iga Swiatek. She pretty much cruised throughout the entire tournament. Spoiler alert, she won. She's the champion of the 2022 Italian Open without dropping a set. I, I just, I, hmm, how do I, how do I put my feelings towards, towards Iga Swiatek? She gets through her quarter without, without, without dropping a set, like I say, and the toughest, the toughest, um, opponent to get to the quarterfinals was Bianca Andrescu and Angie. I'll let you expound because I think you watched that match, didn't you? Yeah, so it was actually the case that when I saw the draw come out, I had a feeling that BB was going to get through and that match was going to happen. And of all the players within the last three or four months of going up against Iga, I thought BB would have the best chance against her because she can actually mix up her plays and give Iga a little bit more to think about. And she really did for that first set. Now it was the case as the set went on, um, Iga started to find her groove a little bit more, but BB was still very much in it and showed um, her signature tenacity. But then everything turned for Iga in the tiebreak, controversial call. BB got really annoyed and then just wasn't able to fully get back into her fight mode. And then she ended up getting bageled in the second set. So in the second set, it was almost tracking like it has been the last three, four months for Iga, basically running through opponents. But I think that was the first time since Australia when Danielle Collins, I think it was, that beat her. Someone actually challenged Iga because otherwise she's been cruising. And I mean, it's good for her to be efficient. Is it the most compelling? Not particularly for me, <laughs> but... If you're going to be the number one player in the world, 
and you want to try to get on and off the court as quick as you can, then she's going about it in the right way. I, I agree with all of that. I, I, I think we've talked about this before about where we would rate her entertaining her, her, her entertaining package as it comes to being a world number one. I'd give her just a, I'd put her a little bit higher on the, the, the rung or the, the ladder of entertainment. Um, specifically, basically because of this matchup with Andrescu, I, I, the way I see Iga Swiatek, yes, she's world number one. Yes, she's on a 28 match winning streak. But I personally see the whole story as who's going to be the person that steps up to the table and not necessarily. Well, we've seen a couple people like really, really test her, but but match her energy. It seems like she's just separated herself from the field so quickly. And it's not it's, it's not a bad thing. It's just it's just a thing that I was not expecting. So to bring it back to that Andrescu match, that's the kind of entertaining tennis, especially in that first set that I want to see. And I think that could really yield really good dividends for the growth and exposure of women's tennis, because it is in a it is a little bit of a of a. I wouldn't say a rough spot, but it is in a predicament where stars are needed. And Swiatek is coming in the role of dominant player. I think I can finally call her that now. I feel like when you, if you win five tournaments in a row, you can kind of be called a dominant player. You know, I, I think y'all know I had some pushback. People calling her dominant when she was, when she after she won the Miami or after she won the Sunshine Double. But five tournaments in a row going into Roland Garros as a number one seed. She is a dominant player. But still, I'm looking for players like Andrescu, even like Azarenka in the round before that, that tested her 6-4. That 6-4-6-1 scoreline in the third round looks kind of ordinary. But that 6-4 set in the first first set was almost, I think it was an hour. Uh, So Swiatek definitely had moments of being tested. But just looking at the tournament on paper, she flew through everybody except the Andrescu match, and I, I would I would like to see where Andrescu ends up in Suyatek section of the draw in the French Open. But that's looking really far ahead. So that was a that was a really good breakdown of the match, Angie. And I kind of wish it was a little bit more competitive in the second set, but at least we got a first set to go off of. I'm not I can't I can't be complaining. I guess. Nigel, what do you think? Yeah, um, I think I think something that's not talked about is how much energy it, it seems like. Iga is almost like Rafa, <clears throat> in that playing against her requires a lot of energy and requires you to expel a lot of energy. And if you even have that ability to stay with her for a few games in the first set. It usually seems to be to your detriment by the time the second set comes around. Like, it just seems like players after that first set are just either out of sorts mentally or physically. And I remember um, that being a thing with like Rafael Nadal. When someone would play him close and you would think, oh, they're doing so well, like playing him close, but like, to play him that close with that, it, it requires so much physicality that even if they won the first set, like 
he would route through the next three. Um, and I think that's the same thing that we're seeing with Iga, <laughs> that um, she's really just breaking these players down after the first set, even if they do seem to test her a little bit. But, yeah, we'll just have to wait and see what happens. I'm, it's, it's exciting to see, but it's also like, all right, I want someone... I would like to see, as I mentioned before, some um, some rivalries and some, you know, uh, players that can go head-to-head um, in multiple tournaments throughout the year. I do think it's a good thing that we've, we've like, established uh, Swiatek as the player to beat. But I also think it's more interesting, like you, like you said, piggybacking off what you said, Nigel, who is going to be, like, in that B-list of people that can take her down? I think that's the biggest storyline going into the French Open. And this tournament just made that storyline all the more... Um, I guess all the more big, I guess, because I, 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 it's not that I didn't want Swiatek to win this year's Rome Open or Italian Open, excuse me, but let's just call a thing a thing. She's on par if she wins the French Open, um, and I'm sure I'll say this again in future podcasts because this is where we stand with it. She's on par to match Venus, Venus Williams' 35-match winning streak, which is the longest women's winning streak on the WTA since the year 2000. I, I, for, for, for my selfish reasons and for putting additional pressure on her, because we all know how tennis pundits and the tennis media works, um, especially in the social media age where people and their expectations kind of can come at you from a whole bunch of different angles. I thought it would be way too much pressure on her going into the French Open with another win under her belt. Remains to be seen how she's going to handle it. But now the, the 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 story is written how it is. She's won the Italian Open without dropping a set. And she looks as dominant as any as any woman has in the past couple of seasons, you know? So. Yeah. Is what it is. I mean, we're, we're talking. We're, we're talking so much about uh, Swiatek that I'm. I'm kind of forgetting there were other women in the, in the tournament. There were, and she obviously played played a finalist. But just going through the just going through the draw and looking at the the, the sheer score lines of it all, she really is head and shoulders above the rest of her peers, and it's it's yeah. astounding because I don't. I wouldn't have said that in February. Like when she won two tournaments in a row, I was like, "That's a hot streak." But five tournaments in a row, something. Yeah, special. absolutely. Uh, hey, Stacy, how are you? Hey, Miles, Angie, Nigel, how you doing? Good. How are you, Stacy? I'm doing good. Do you have any questions? I'm Stacy. You always have a question for us, and I appreciate that. Did you have any questions today? <laughs> Oh well, I didn't realize that. Um that I always It's a, it's a good thing though. Oh, I know, I know. Um <laughs> No, um I think for me because her number one ranking came from out of nowhere. Um I guess I wasn't paying attention with the whole Barty abruptly retiring. I don't know, I just couldn't wrap my head around it and I wasn't paying attention to her winning these the previous tournaments. But it looks like she's here to stay. Um, her movement is just unmatched right now. Um, I thought Jabbar gave her a little bit of, not the scoreline, <laughs> but I thought she gave her a little bit of trouble. But then when I realized the movement, um, no one can match her movement throughout the tournament. And I think she's here to stay. Um, 
like yourself, Nigel, I I kind of don't want to, not so much don't want to admit it and don't want to see it, but it's like, oh, okay, it, it is what it is. And we're going to hear her name a lot. And we're going to, especially if she passes um, Venus, it's going to be a whole thing. And just prepare yourself because that girl is on a mission and she just looks unstoppable right now. She really does. There are you mentioned her movement, Stacy, and that's a, that's something we really haven't touched on in in the grand scheme of Sweatech. She's moving well, and she's she's found a way to transition. Because the first time I realized that she was a really great mover and could cover the court well was on a clay court. I was interested to see how that would translate to hard courts, and I was worried even in this season if she had kind of forgotten in some ways how to take that hardcore movement to clay court tournament a clay court uh, surfaces excuse me but she's blown like my expectations out of the water it's almost like i keep expecting her to get to a moment where the moment is greater than what she is prepared for and for the past two months, that, that moment hasn't happened. And even you mentioned uh, Anz Jabor, the scoreline isn't going to show it at all. The scoreline was 6-2-6-2. You would think that Iga Swiatek just beat her to sleep in a, you know an hour and some change. There were moments in that match yeah. where, where Anz Jabor created breakpoint opportunities. And Swiatek, I, I, don't, I don't look at her like... Um, somebody that goes on lockdown mode kind of like a Novak Djokovic who we'll talk about later on and when he goes on lockdown mode and lockdown mode and doesn't miss her lockdown mode is almost to become more aggressive to the point where the person on uh, her opponent on the other side of the net doesn't really have any options because she can do pretty much everything on the court a little bit better than everybody else right now she's and, and it, it's not like she has one well, I guess you can say she has one large weapon because if she if she has one, it would be her forehand. But movement, forehand, backhand, she knows how to handle herself when she gets close to the net. She can she can serve well. She does all those things really well, even in the tighter moments. It's kind of like so. What do I do? Even if I if I am on Jabor and I come off the heels of winning Madrid on my own, I think she was on an eleven match win streak with mm-hmm. the matches in the matches in Madrid plus the matches leading up to the uh, Rome final. What do I do? Because it's not like Anz Jabor was playing badly. So she, uh, there's a lot of matches I've seen with her, like at two all, everyone's on serve. And then all of a sudden someone's in a long service game because she's like determined to break. And then after that, you know, it's like a long ass two all, three team that's been like 15 minutes. But then she wins the set like six two, so the score looks like pretty bad. But like they were out there like like battling pretty hard. Like today, um, one of the moments was in the second set. I think uh, Jabor was up. No, it was on Iga's serve. So it was love forty, Jabor. But Iga came back. I'm like, oh, okay. This is going to turn it around. She she's um she's down, meaning Iga, um, love forty, but she came right back, and I think the scoreline was four two, if I have that correctly. But Iga, the four two game was a tight one, Stacey. You're right; it was really tight. Yes, 
And I'm like, she came back from four, I mean, from uh, Love 40 and went up five two. <laughs> I I, watching watching large chunks of that match, I I definitely expected it to be more competitive. But uh, mm-hmm. I, I I don't know what the I, if we don't know what the game plan. And I I consider us some some very avid tennis watchers who've been doing it for a while and can kind of pick apart what a player is doing well. I can only imagine what like the locker room feels, what her peers feels like. Well, what do I do against her? What does what do I bring to the court to stop her from dominating me the way that she's doing? You know, it's just it's just something to it's it's just something to really behold because it's it's. Oh. it's go ahead, Stacy. I'm sorry, I have a question that reminds me. Go ahead. So, how is she in the locker room? I mean, is she beloved? Like, who is beloved these days? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I mean, Jabor is. J- people do like Jabor. Yeah. There's always a pic- she's always in somebody else's picture. I feel like she's she's just one of the girls in the locker room. There's no like there's there's no like animosity and there's no general like overwhelming amounts of love either. What would you say about that, Angie? I mean, I think it's just the case that a lot of people respect her, especially for what she's doing, and I think. They just really appreciate her personality, too, because she is a little bit awkward and very quirky. So Mm -hmm. she gets on with a lot of players um, in that regard. So I don't think she's at beloved status yet, but she's definitely respected and well-liked by a lot of the players. That was a beautiful embrace at the end. I love seeing that. Does anybody remember? Yeah, I remember j- between Jabor and Tuyatik. I think Jabor, now that Jabor came in with her own win streak, she has a Masters 1000 under her belt. I think she, too, has a respect for what Tuyatik has been able to do over the past couple of months. So I, mm-hmm. I, I think there's, there's like Angie said, there's a lot of just in general respect for the way that she, she the way that she was given the mantle of the number one player on the heels of Ash Barty's retirement and sudden retirement, then a couple of days later she's playing to officially get that number one ranking and hasn't released it since. Because the week before that, the week the week before that whole scenario, she was playing to just get to world number two, and that would have been a career high ranking for her. So she kind of she she skipped she got to number world number two was there for a week and then the very next week almost. She's world number one. So we didn't really get to see her her career trajectory has just been interesting, starting off going back to 2020 when she came out of nowhere and won the French Open in 2020 when it was played in October. There hasn't been like a real um, steady ascent to the top. She's just kind of, boom, been at the top, you know, in, in several different ways in her career. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. Well, we've we've we we talked about Sviatek and we've we've covered bits and pieces of the final. I guess we can move we can work backwards a little bit um, to some of the earlier round matches that, that were interesting or some of the upsets. I'm looking here at the bottom section of the draw. Um, we can we can spend a little bit of time picking this apart. Uh, Jill Teichman had a good run this tournament. She made it to the quarterfinals, and one of the upsets she was able to cause was over number six seed, Carolina Pliskova. And I don't know what the official number of losses in a row that Pliskova has, but to say she's the defending Wimbledon finalist and a former world number one, she has not been able to put together um, a solid campaign at any point this season. I was wondering how you guys felt 
about like when you saw that she had lost to me it just was one of those things where i was just like well because she lost especially on clay she has good clay results but it's I, I think she would fancy herself on a faster surface um but jill teichman does what jill teichman does she she creates um a headache for players with the lefty spin the especially on a clay court the ability to kind of grind out points and Pliskova ended up being upset. So that didn't surprise me, but I'm, I'm interested to see what you guys felt about it. Uh, I mean, honestly, like you said, Pliskova, I think, is maybe on like a seven streak losing. Seven lose seven, <laughs> seven, seven match losing, losing streak? I, yeah, something like that. And I don't think it mattered who was on the other side of the court. And she's coming back from an injury. Was it an injury? An injury, yeah. Yeah, and she's 30 years old, which, you know, is not old anymore. But I don't know. I think it gets harder and harder to come back when you're older if you haven't come back from injuries um, as a younger player. And she's someone that has to be, I think, like in rhythm with the way she plays because that's she's like a true flat hitter um i didn't watch that match but i don't know i don't know what i see for her in the future she hasn't really shown shown much for a comeback which is uh unfortunate for her yeah like i think for pliskova for her game style it was okay when her inflexibility was okay when she was younger because you know you have the power and you're able to just hit through the court with younger legs. But now that she's, you know, she's dealt with a really big injury, she's 30 years old now, that inflexibility really isn't going to cut it anymore. And I think also at that age too, you're not really going to change your game that readily. So the girls are only getting younger. Um, They're going to be able to dismantle your game a lot more, especially if you don't really have a lot of variety to begin with. And then she was never a good mover also. So it's the case that a lot of the surfaces, yes, there's still like a few fast surfaces, but a lot of them are slower. So basically, if your game is inflexible, you're on an injured body and then you can't move well, that's not really the equation for having a lot of success um, into your 30s type thing. I have to agree. Well, good evening, everybody. I'm I'm Brandon. Hey, um, Brandon. I have to agree. I hi. I um wasn't Pushkova the finalist last year at Rome, if I'm not mistaken, and she got double baked. Yeah, she lost. Oh, I know. Okay. Um. So I know those points she had to defend, and her season didn't start in the most orthodox tradition, where she was injured prior to Australia. Um. I'm not sure. If it's just an ego thing with a lot of top players where when they come back from injury, they have to play these 1000s where I kind of feel like they need to kind of play themselves into a place in 250s, if that makes sense. Um, she hasn't gotten any rhythm in tournaments because she has won more than one match. I think she won a match in Charleston. And that was the buck stop there. Um, she has to find her medium of consistency. Granted, she has low margin in her game, which doesn't really bode well on clay courts despite her being successful in Rome, but um, I don't see her progressing too far rolling arrows. Um, perhaps she might find strides on the grass season and into the summer hard course. Maybe she might make some quarters and semis then, but I don't see it for her on clay right now. 
I agree. I remember when she used to scare me um, when Serena was playing consistently. And all of that has left. She doesn't scare anyone, much less me. Um, (laughs) (laughs) You know, she used to have this serve. And like Angie, to Angie's point, she was never a good mover. Um, But she used to have a serve almost like and you guys correct me, but it was almost as powerful as Serena's. I think she could, if, if, like, if there was a serve competition, Serena, mm-hmm. Serena would fancy her chances, but not by a large margin. Right. I still, I still think Serena's serve is probably more effective. But if it was just a matter of, like, you know, sitting, like, st- not sitting there, but going to practice, putting some um, objects across the court and seeing who can hit the hardest most consistently. Pliskova might have an edge on Serena, but as far as effectiveness in a in an actual tennis match, mm, her serve is effective, don't get me wrong, but not as effective as like somebody who I'm thinking of, like a Serene or even Swiatek, with like the, the way they're able to use the certain spins on their serve and kind of disrupt mm-hmm. rhythm. Her, her, her serve is basically just large and flat. <laughs> I think she's like led ace count for the season a few times or came close to it, like at least top three. Yeah. It's formidable. Mm-hmm. It's formidable, but I think yeah. in general, I think in general her game is is just losing some sting and like Brandon mm-hmm. coming coming back from injury. Um and like you said, Nigel, like combining those things, c- coming back from injury and being a little older. Not that she's super old, but um yeah. your your body just doesn't uh bounce back the same way that it, it did when she was fresh on the tour and people, you know, combine that with the fact that people pretty much know her game, like the back of their hands. She hasn't done anything magnificently um, different for all these years she's been on tour. It's just not a good recipe to see her uh, moving forward in draws unless something kind of just clicks for her. So we'll see. And, um, and the game has changed a lot. Like even in the last year and a half, I feel like the game has become a little bit more uh, physical, like there's really not a place as much for someone who can just hit and not move. Like the girls are doing exactly. both now. Like they, yes, they are, and they're not. There also aren't that many places for like pushers in the top ten. So I think that's where she kind of had her success. There were people who couldn't really defend like her shots, in, but now people can defend and hit you off the court. So. It's not, yeah, I don't know where, she, where she'll go from here. Super and if it wasn't for her, Serena would be at 24, right? There's a, a bunch of players in which Serena would be 30. <laughs> well, recently. Yeah, yeah so re- she stopped Serena at the 2016 U.S. Open and the 2019 Australian Open. So she has stopped herself at the Australian Open. But that's another story. Right? <laughs> let's, and let's move yeah, on. Let's move on. <laughs> We'll, we'll, oh, save that. we'll save that for the after show. Um, so in that same section with Pliskova, uh, Badosa was the number two seed, and she was upset by Daria Kasakina. Uh, Angie, is Kasakina one of like your low key faves? I don't remember. If if, if she is, I'm 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 happy for you to, to expand on what you thought her um, her tournament was like. If she's not, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, I mean, I guess you could say she's a low key fave for me. Like she's always played very well in clay she's just had a lot of injuries like the last like year or so so i didn't really know how she was going to be coming into this clay court season 
Um, but I was surprised that she beat my Paulita 6-4-6-4. But then to talk about Paula, I think it might be the case that she is just overplaying. And it might also be the notion like, okay, this is kind of new for her too, um, that she basically rose up to number two in the world. I mean, she's been working really, really hard to get to this point, but now I almost feel like it was the case that because she had this new ranking, she almost felt like she couldn't say no to these tournaments. She's like, oh, like, you know, I have this ranking and I can actually gain points and everything. So even though her body was probably telling her, no, don't play anymore, she still went and played all these tournaments and she was also playing doubles too. So I think that basically adversely affected her so now it's the case she comes up against these players and you think okay paula like you should get to the semifinals finals you should be winning these tournaments but she crashes out in the first or second round and that's what happened with dario i looked at the stats i didn't watch the match but looked at the stats and basically paula had nothing really to hurt Daria, like Daria could basically do whatever that she wanted to. And then kind of like um, an Iga or a Simona, her game comes alive on the clay courts because she moves impeccably well. She has a lot of variety. And when she wants to, she can actually inject a lot of pace on her forehand and backhand. So, I mean, a good result for Daria Kasakina, but I think for Paula, she definitely has to think like, okay, how am I going to evaluate my season for Roland Garros and then going forward to try to maximize her results, but then also preserve her body so she doesn't break down, you know, before she even reaches like 26 or so. I hope she doesn't play doubles at, in Paris. Like, please don't. But I, I just hope like- she's taking her, her, I guess hope she's taking her vitamin C uh, supplements because every time I see her. B12. Something, something to give her a little bit energy because I'm I'm sure the energy level is I'm I'm being sarcastic, but I'm sure the energy level is 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 on par with being a professional athlete. But in the midst of her matches, sometimes I just <laughs> I just wonder how she's feeling because she looks listless out there. Yeah, and she's been looking bad since what Miami? Like Miami, I think that's when it started. Yep. Yeah, and you mean I thought she had. About- Paula Badosa. We, we were, we were. I was talking about Casquina because Casquina uh, upset Badosa, but we kind of veered to talking more about Badosa because she hasn't, she hasn't had a bad season. She's won a title. She's made some deep runs, but the past couple of weeks, like we've been saying, we've noticed her on court demeanor just be really listless. Like even in the matches she's winning, she looks like she's about to keel over. And I think Angie made a good point about her trying to adjust. With having a new ranking, I don't know if she realizes that she can be a little bit more selective with the tournament she enters and 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 actually agrees to play, you know? But that's what happens when you don't have a result at a slam. So all your results are from the outside tournaments and you have to defend points week in and week out. And I feel like that's what's happening to her now. Like if she had... If she had a good result at a slam, she'd have some cushion to be able to, you know, say, oh, not going to play this tournament because, you know, she might have she would have gained some points. But she hasn't had a good result at a slam. I'm hoping that the French 
will give her. I'm hoping that she can do something at French because you have, uh, you know, a day off of play. If if she doesn't play doubles, but like a day off of play will help her. And she has she didn't good thing she lost early in Madrid. That way she can you know she has some time to rest her body. But if she does both, um, I don't know. And Kazakina um, did play well. I did watch the first set, and I think it was like like neither one of them were holding in the first set until like it was it, definitely it, a push. It was a push fest. I don't, I don't, yeah. I don't necessarily categorize Badosa as a pusher, but she no. was, you you could tell she was playing down to Kazakina's strength, which is yeah. Just, getting the ball in play with a whole bunch of spin and working the point. I think Bedosa has that in her, but she was utilizing it a little bit too much to actually be the winner in that match against Kazakina. Yeah. Especially with someone with, with, with injuries, you would think no. We're trying to finish the point, you know? Yeah. <laughs> but maybe I guess finishing the point takes too much effort out of you and almost puts the injury Sometimes it does. That's true. Yeah. So, it's just a well, lot of footwork. We'll give we'll bless Bedosa moving forward. <laughs> um, so that's it for that. That's it for that section as far as notable results. I guess we can fly through the fact that Ostapenko lost early. She lost to uh, Lauren Davis, who was a qualifier. Um, Kasakina actually had a pretty good run. She beat Zidanchik, uh, La, Layla Fernandez, Paula Bedosa. Jill Teichman, and then she ended up losing to Anjabur. Although she held a match point, um, I didn't watch the match point to go back and watch it. Apparently, it was a, a really nice line clipper. Um, but uh, shout out to Kasakina. She was unseated in this tournament and is likely a dark horse for the French Open moving forward. Um, this this next player I wanted to get you guys is throw into the throw into the round table. I guess you can say um, is. Can y'all guess who I, I haven't I haven't dropped a clue, but I, can y'all guess who I wanted to transition to next? <laughs> can anybody guess? Not, not Sabalenka. Not Sabalenka, but her last name does start with an S. Sakri? Yep. Oh okay. god. <laughs> <laughs> I I'm not sure where to put my... Well, you know what? I, I say that a lot about I'm not sure where to put my feelings on her. I I, I think, to quote to quote um, a, a fairly commonly used term in these rooms, <laughs> I think her flop gene is officially activated. And I don't know how she... I don't know if she knows how to deal with it. I don't, I don't know if she knows how to deal with the reality that if she wins a big tournament, the likelihood of her becoming like a world number two or something like that is very, is very plausible. And she plays like she doesn't really want to be the top gun. Does that make sense? Well, Miles, yes. she has to put herself a lot in a of situation to, to win a tournament. That's one. What'd you and say, Brandon? She has to get in a situation where she wins a tournament and you can give her a handicap of being up six, two, five, two, 40 love. And she may potentially still lose the match. Because that because yeah. that's what happened in her match against Anj Jabor. She was up six one five two six one five two thirty love and Jabor came back to win that second set seven five and then she was just completely completely done in the third. Jabor won the third set six one. So I don't I I don't know how. Hopefully, that match doesn't scar her for the rest of the season. But if it does, I would understand because that would even at our like my level of play. If I was up six one five two thirty love and lost the match, you I would be want me. 
I wouldn't want to talk to anybody for the remainder of the week. The remainder of the week. week. You wouldn't see me on the court in a month. <laughs> so yeah. there seems to be a pattern with uh, Zachary not knowing how to close. Yes. Right. And I think that's like kind of the case. Um, it was referenced earlier in the chat. And I think that's something that is just so pertinent for Ega, for instance, her having a mental psychologist like in her team, because if you're thinking about the X's and O's of being a tennis player, that's great. But for the closing bits, you kind of need to have that extra one or two percent. And I feel like for Sakari, that's missing. And of course, like, you know, her coach, Tom Hill, can like give her all the tactics being like, okay, like, hey, if you're up 30 or 40 love, go with your best shots, like hit the forehand inside out or, you know, employ your variety or something like that. But if you're thinking about like, oh, my God, I could get to the semifinals of Rome or I could get to the final and, you know, you have all the pressure and you have nerves then the tactics kind of go out the door and then you're trying to bank on yourself and you can't really get into those mental reserves. So I must think for her, maybe to actually get over the hump and win those titles, she needs an additional professional in her camp to kind of be like, okay, when you're in these moments, kind of think about like X, Y, and Z to calm yourself down and actually have more clarity of thought and not think like, okay, so straight line, like, here are the tactics, like, no, like, let me try to handle my emotions. So I can just be less clouded, and actually end the matches instead of, even if it's the case, like in the match against Anjabor, okay, you lose that game, and it's 5-3, you can actually mentally rebound a lot better, and actually close and break in that game that next game instead of letting it linger and then lose the match from a winning position type thing i think it's a mixture of Anz jabor forgetting how to lose in a in a span of a couple of of a couple of weeks and a mixture of sakari just not utilizing the tools that she actually has to be able to put matches away that she should be winning which is unfortunate because she's she creates a lot of opportunities for her to go deep in draws and to win when she's deep in these matches in quarterfinal, semifinal, final stages, and she doesn't get over the hump. And I don't know what it's going to take. I, I, I mean, I, you brought up a good point, Angie, about the uh, sports psychologist. Maybe she should travel with one, but I don't see how she doesn't ha- have a solution yet because we've been talking about it as an issue for for quite a while. I mean, in, in, on paper, it's been an issue since she's been a top player. The fact that she only has one career title at a 250 from 2019, which at this point is, what, three or four years ago? It's just not looking like she has the chops to be a consistent performer when it matters at the top, most elite level of the game, which is unfortunate because the bun, the arms, the game, the serve, all of that is like good stuff. It's just it, it's just not translating to her lifting trophies or even coming close to lifting trophies consistently. So, sorry, Sakari. Oh, that that that's a, a alliteration. Sorry, Sakari. <laughs> um, who else is in that Sakari section? Oh well, she, Sakari did get a win over Coco Golf. We can kind of dig into Coco Golf's season or Rome Open, I guess, because if we dig into her season, we'll be here all day. Um, 
I didn't know that Coco had two wins before she beat Sakari. For whatever reason, I thought she went straight from beating uh, straight from beating Angelique Kerber to losing to Sakari, but she actually beat Madison Bringle in the second round in between that. So she did pick up some some um, some match wins in Rome, but I watched a lot of that match between Sakari and Coco Golf, and like we've said in here before, Coco Golf has glaring holes in her game. To say that she can still compete with the top players with those glaring holes is a testament to her athleticism and her her drive and just her competitiveness. But it's it's still going to take some some overhaul and some tweaking for um, me to feel confident in her game that she could be a winner at a Masters One Thousand event and win six to seven matches in a row to really win some big trophies. Am I am I wrong in thinking like that? No, I actually don't think you're wrong. Like, it's very strange to think because when I, when I think about Coco playing at the French Open last year, she was playing amazing tennis. Probably should have won that match against Krishikova, but still was playing amazing tennis. And I kind of feel that watching her in the clay court season this year, she's almost regressed a notch. And I don't know if that's just, you know, from a lack of, confidence like maybe trying to tweak her shots and then not feeling comfortable with the tweaks that have been made but i think it's almost the case too that she's possibly a little clouded maybe getting a lot of different information from a lot of different sources like okay coco you need to tweak this like coco you need to do this on your serve you need to do this this and that and there's nothing really concrete for her to latch on to so that she can actually ride a wave of confidence and get the results that she should be getting in these tournaments. Go ahead, Nigel. Uh, I didn't have a complete thought. Um, <laughs> it's okay. but I, I, Angie, I like what you said about possibly her tweaking um, some shots and then not being confident about them on the court because it's brand new. Um, yeah, and it's like, you know, a lot of people look at the forehand and they're like, oh, the grip on the forehand. But I don't think it's the grip because there's a lot. There's, and St. Traven says there's a lot. There's a lot of players who have the Western grip and make it work. I think it's just going to, it's going to take extra time for her to develop, um, what to develop like conditioning and the fitness that it takes to 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 hit that forehand and and stay on top of a point um and for it to work during times that's crucial when things get tight and she yeah tighter than the she doesn't get tighter than the actual moment because i feel like that happens you can, yeah it's been something i've been noticing that that comes across her face when the moment gets tight yeah. it, it's in her eyebrows almost it, like, yeah I, I'm yeah. desperate, I desperately need to win this. This it's almost it's a mixture of her knowing I desperately need to come out of this situation, but I don't trust what my tools are to get me through the situation, and that yeah. just makes her look super stressed. And then her opponent knows well. Yep. <laughs> here, and I I do think the service motion needs. I do. I think the service motion does need work. It's too uh, clunky for me. Uh, for her to have a good second serve. The first serve, of course, is fine, but I think the second serve 
I think the the motion needs to be a little bit more fluid in order for her to feel um, safe on the second serve because there's so much time in between the strike and the toss that if you're going, if you're nervous, is yeah, that's going to break down like all the time. So I think that's it. And if the if the serve holds up, I I believe that the rest of the game will help her because that serve gives her a good start in the point when it's on. You think it's a matter of adjusting her ball toss, Nigel? Like bringing it down a little bit lower would help. I think I think it needs to just. I think the serve toss, the serve in general, just needs to be more fluid. It's very stop and go a lot. It reminds me of actually Venus too. Venus had that kind of stop when she changed her um, her service motion. It was like a stop and go, and when it broke down, it was. You know, it broke down. <laughs> hard to watch. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, so, yeah. Um, speaking of hard to watch, let's transition over to um, another match that was actually easy to watch for entertainment purposes. But if you're a Muguruza fan, I would imagine it was it was, it was hard to kind of swallow another loss to Putin. Say, um, where do we where do we uh, gauge Muguruza and her game? Because I, I kind of feel like she's in that same scenario with Pliskova aging in terms of tennis experience, but not really keeping up with what the game is doing. And just to, to give a little bit more color, she was she won the first set 6-3 over Yulia Putinseva, who qualified to get into the tournament. But, you know, a qualifier in a, in a Masters 1000 doesn't, doesn't necessarily mean you're a scrub. And I wouldn't say yeah. Putinseva is a scrub, especially on clay. But I believe uh, Muguruza was up 6-3. Uh, she was up substantial in that second set. And Putinseva managed to climb into a, climb into a tiebreak. And then after that, similar to the Anj Jabor and Sakari match, Muguruza just went completely away in the third set, 6-1. And then there was a little bit of a... Um, a moment in early on in that second set where Putin Seba hit Muguruza with a ball as she was coming up to the net. That sparked some drama. And then the handshake at the end was as icy as it could possibly be. What, what do you guys, if, if, if this is your moment to drag Muguruza, uh, please use it. I don't mind. Well, I mean, <laughs> Sorry, I'll, give her, I'll give her a mini drag and just kind of like as a general for the tour, like for the WTA, Really, any player in the WTA can just be like, okay, I can come back in any type of match because that's how the WTA has been playing out. But especially for Garbina, you think, okay, she was up really big against Allison Risk. Allison Risk in Indian Wells and ended up losing that match. So, if you're <laughs> Angie, why did you say Allison Risk like that? <laughs> you know why? Because with her grounds, I love Allie, but with her ground strokes and the the way the Indian Wells court plays, Muguruza shouldn't have won that match. Well, shouldn't have lost that match, but she did. So if you're Yulia Putinseva and you're down really big and you kind of just think back to that match, you're like, okay, like this girl is mentally fragile and she's had a lot of scar tissue from losing these matches. So... You're like, okay, I can come back. And especially since it's on clay, which is a surface that I'm very comfortable on, it's going to be even easier mentally to be like, okay, dig my heels in, test her, see how she's going to mentally react. And you saw what happened. She had, again, another mental breakdown and was able, 
and Yulia was able to come back and win that match. So I think for Garbina, um, you just build up enough scar tissue and you're just kind of like, do I really want to be out here anymore? So I don't want to like stir up anything, but I kind of feel like a retirement is going to come from her in the next year or two because she just doesn't have the same sting in her game as she did when she was winning the French Open, Wimbledon, like even Cincinnati on those really fast hard courts. It's just not there for her. And then she's just having so many questionable losses against players that she really should be beating more readily. I just think it's a confidence thing for her, to be honest. What voice is that? Is that a new voice on the stage? <laughs> uh, jokes, jokes, jokes. Um, yeah, no, but no, like even if you look at her season last year, it wasn't really great until the end of the season. So I think she struggles with finding motivation because if you just look at her career, she'll have a high high like winning a Grand Slam and then she'll disappear. She kind of, I won't say she started the trend of winning Grand Slams and disappearing, but she definitely was one of the first to kind of get that train going. And so I, I just think this is kind of like a sophomore slump, if you will. Not necessarily, she had a pretty good year at the end of the year. Beginning of the year, she it was all right for her. Now she's in one of those lows that she goes through. I just don't think she's going to ever be. Yeah a consistent player like we have grown accustomed to like in the days of like, you know, Serena, Venus, Lindsay, Justine, all of them, like they were consistent. Like they didn't, if they played the smaller tournaments, it was a, a quarters a semis and they were losing to each other opposed to, you know, somebody ranked 42 in the world who had to qualify for, you know, a premier 1000. So I just think she's one of those girls who's just never going to be, consistent on the tour and i think she's kind of accepted that too at this point so what you're saying is tobias when she travels to rabat next week to try to find some form ahead of the french open she's not going to find what she's looking for is that what you're saying no i'm saying she <laughs> she may and she may uh go deep and you know depending on her draw and make it to like the semis um of the french open and then she may again disappear. of the french <laughs> she no miles that's honestly that's the reason why she stays relevant is because she'll put like tobias said she'll play kind of crap for a large portion of the year and then have a run for like two or three weeks and gain all these points <laughs> and like stay within the top 15 it just it just so happened for your last year huh Let's say prime example, her year last year, like, has she not played the way she played at the end of the last year and also got the points? For, um, didn't she play in the year and then final? I think she won. Yeah. Right. So let's, so let's if you remove all those points, yeah, if you remove all those points from, let's say, <laughs> what, November, from the end of November, going back to uh, August-ish, if you remove all the points that she gained there, She's probably at best a top fifty player right now. Yep. <laughs> That's but what she, I was had run, she had that she had that run that you know propelled her back into the top ten. And then let's say her beginning of the year wasn't horrible. It just wasn't the best. And now she can't buy a match to win at this like point. Top twenty five, you know. 
Yeah. Her, but she, yeah, she, yeah, it's, I think she, like, like it's, she really benefits from not playing well for a full year and then having different moments of the year where she does. <laughs> so she has a complete she's, game. She's had a few comebacks. Like, when you, we thought, oh, Margarita is, like, leaving the top 10 and she's leaving the top 15. And then all of a sudden she has a run and she's back within the top, you know, top 10. But, uh, yeah. I also think that she may have been she, – she may be one of those players that's been coached too much. So her game does require a lot of um, – what do you call it? Like a lot reps. of steam. Yeah, a lot of reps because she's changed her game so much. Um, in the way she hits the ball that I don't think it's... Sometimes when I think that happens, I'm not sure if it's natural for a player and they can keep it keep it up. It's hard to fix after a certain time. So I don't know what it looks like for her. I don't know if it's where at the end of the look for her. I also say the same thing about her, what I said about Pliskova, is that you know the top 10 is different and the players are different and she was from in a specific era and can't get away with some things that she could probably be forced, who knows. I also think another player we need to keep an eye on as in terms of trajectory, um, especially after this tournament, is Sabalenka. And then after Sabalenka, we can transition to the men's draw. Cause we we spent a little a little bit of time talking well, we spent a lot of time talking about the women. But the last person I wanted to touch on was Sabalenka, who surprisingly had a good tournament. She made her way to the semifinals where she was routed by Iga Sviat at 6-2-6-1. But along the way, she had some good victories. She beat uh, uh, Zhang Shuai, 6-2-6-love. A really, really nice win over Madrid runner-up Jessica Pagula, 6-1-6-4. And then I believe the, the victory that she should take the most from uh, in the entire week in Rome was her victory over Anisimova because, like we all know, she came into that match with a, a 0-4 head-to-head and was able to just edge out Anisimova in three sets. Um, but it's interesting how she goes from getting such a uh, a victory that should propel you to uh, to, to higher heights. Because I know for me, if I finally got a victory over somebody that I've been struggling with, the next match I'd be really up for. And I'm not saying she wasn't up for the match against Wiatek, but she played like she has very little tennis IQ. And that is where I worry about Sabalenka because she has major, major tools. But I don't know if she really identifies or can identify when to utilize them and how to utilize them against certain players. Because it's essentially, especially when she's stressed, she's only going to hit the ball harder and louder. And it's only... It's, it's, I don't even know if it was, if I would say 50 50. I was going to say it's a 50 50 shot of the ball going in. It might be 40, 40, whatever the equivalent of that is. I'm, you know, I know math is not my strong suit. It, it, it might, the ball might hit the back fence or it might, uh, hit the, hit the tape or it might hit the bottom of the net, especially with the serving woes she's had at the beginning of the season that's kind of been in and out of her game. I, I, I grab positives for, for her from this tournament, but I also look at that match against Suyatek and I'm like, this is the top player in the world. And you, you, you kind of carry yourself. Like you have the swagger to be able to beat anybody, but you were just not even awake during that match. So, so, so what's up? What's up, Sabalenka? What do you, what do you guys feel? I mean, that's pretty much been her since she came on the tour. 
And I feel like that's just going to be her for the rest of her career because that's where she's the most comfortable. Um, it's almost like not to go too far, but let's say like a Dennis Shapovalov, like, okay, it's almost Russian roulette. You're going to go for broke or not. Like that's your game. That's where you feel the most comfortable. And for Sabalenka, she's like, okay, yeah, I could hit 50 miles out or the balls can be really great on the line. That's her, that's her base level. That's where she operates the best. And I feel like if she tried to change her game, it almost would be more detrimental because that's taking her out of her natural element. So I think really the big thing for her is that she almost needs to work more on the mental not getting so down on herself and everything like okay yeah take that you're gonna have good days and bad days but still keep progressing instead of letting yourself linger with like oh like you know i lost this match this way or you know i shouldn't have lost to this opponent just keep building and then just kind of take your game like wherever you need it to go um to try to progress as much as you can Uh, I think she had a good few weeks. Um, it's just as you know, Sabalenka and big moments don't mix. So even though Iga, even though that match may have not been like a final, and then she did play the final with Iga, like, uh, how did I forget? How did I forget Iga cleared her in that Stuttgart final? That I, I keep forgetting that. <laughs> Because it's, I mean, the it just seems like one, the clay season seems like one long tournament to me, especially when you have, like, the same winners <laughs> in and out, like, um, but I think, yeah, big moments don't match up for her, and even though that wasn't, like, a big, well, it wasn't, like, a final, she knows that, you know, Iga is Iga, so going up against her is something that that's something big, but it's probably kind of been like that. Like Angie was saying for her career, like she'll, she'll have like the momentum going into a tournament or like a grand slam and only get to maybe the third for a while. She wasn't getting to the second week. And then of course, like last year, she kind of broke that barrier and made it to the second week pretty often. Um, but then in the semis didn't play. I don't, well, to me, I don't think she played her best at Wimbledon in Wimbledon. Um, and yeah, I don't know. Iga may be a matchup that is never going to work for her, to be honest, because she's Sabalenka wants to be on top of that point like all the time, and Iga's not going to let that happen. And I, don't, I think it's only a few points or a few games where you know Iga can wear that down, and it affects Sabalenka mentally to the point where yeah, it's going to be a six-two set pretty quickly. Because uh, is going to realize she doesn't have control of these um, points, and Sab- and uh, Eager returns so well that she's putting pressure. She's going to put pressure on um, a service game for Sabalenka that may have been routine for any other player. And now you're like under pressure as soon as you start the match. So I think that's always going to be a tough matchup for her, to be honest. Um, but I think she's. I think she. I hope that she does well at the French. I think she did it. She had a good clay court season. She just came up against, um, you know, the best in the world right now. That's I, I, I see that perspective, Nigel. I mean, she has had a rough season, and then coming up against Viatek isn't a isn't a uh, easy task. 
But we also have somebody new on the stage. Hey, Mal, hi. How are you? Did you have some some commentary for Sabalenka? No, you know I love Sabalenka. um i think that 2021 was a very very interesting year um and i think that when i look at like sabalenka i obviously we don't know what these players think um well besides what they say but i think that for her she really felt like she was gonna have her moment and i think that in her head now it's a case of she's in the middle of 2022 and she hasn't got that singles grand slam to show for it i think when she was Number two, behind Ash, it was kind of very easy for her to be like, okay, cool, I can see that there's this one woman and I've got a very good rivalry against her. So if I get to a final, I could potentially beat her. And then all of a sudden, it didn't happen at Wimbledon. Then she got to the semis of the US and she was like clearly the favourite to win that. And then Emma Raducanu came. And then all of a sudden, Ash is now gone. And then Iga Swiatek has come out of nowhere. And it's like in the blink of an eye, it feels like the game has passed by a lot of these players. Like, it feels like for a Sabalenka, a Magarutha, a Pliskova, like, the game has just, in the span of, like, eight months, completely changed. And so where they thought that they were probably this time last year, actually, the same game they're playing isn't going to hold up now. And I think for Sabalenka, she's still mentally trying to get around that, hence the service yips, hence the frustration and seeming like she's got a very low IQ on court because what she was able to do, which was essentially just, you know, beat the brakes off of everybody. She can't do that now purely because, you know, Iga, Emma, Layla, Bianca, they all move so much better than we've seen women do in the last four or five years. Um, so I think for, for Big Sab, a lot of it probably is that she's probably really down on herself for not taking a Grand Slam last year. I didn't think about it that way, Mahai, but I'm I'm glad I'm, I'm glad that I can I, I I can give her oh y'all gonna y'all gonna drag me for giving Sabalenka some G word, but I gotta give her a little bit of grace now because I thought about it that way. I'm giving her grace too. I giving her grace? <laughs> compared to what she was looking like at the end of the season and how she, and she, where she was in the hardcore swing a few months ago, I think she did. She's done. And I, well. I think as well, like when you when you look at like if you're gonna coach a tennis player, you'd want them come up as a youngster, do well in the juniors and then break onto the tour, but then you want them to play doubles and you want them to play doubles to a certain degree so they get used to winning. So like Krajikova followed that same pattern of playing loads of doubles and winning and then won the single slam, but it didn't happen for Sab. And I think that she's basically done everything that you would expect the trajectory of 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 a champion to do, but she just hasn't taken that final step. So I just think for her, it's just real mental right now. That was a good assessment. I never thought of it that way, too. A lot of top players played doubles before they won their majors. Kuznetsova did it. Um, the sisters did it. A couple other players did as well. So it's not far-fetched to see Krachikova's success come up to fruition. I, I mean, suppose. that's why Mladenovic is so upset that she can't do shit in singles because, you know, she was... I can't. <laughs> <laughs> where did, where did Mladenovic get these bullets from? How did she come in the conversation? <laughs> <laughs> no, because a few years ago she was meant to be the big thing in tennis. No, I don't know if she was the the big thing, but she was a, a thingy thing, like a like a thing. Yeah, but you know, thing like you know us, thing. us Europeans, we like we like to try and make somebody happen, and we really tried to make Christina happen. Oh, we know. <laughs> we do it too. Well, I think that's a good uh, a good stopping point for our women's conversation. Wait, Miles. So we can head over. To- 
Go ahead. Just before, just before we uh we go, I was I was listening to everyone talk about ego, right? And there's something mm-hmm. that I've noticed that she does that I haven't really seen anyone do consistently besides Rafa and um wear a big hat. Wear a big hat over her head. <laughs> Rafa needs a hat because you know there's some stuff going on up there. But um, when you when you when you move Iga to her left, she doesn't turn her back to the court to hit a backhand. So you know how like normally when you hit a backhand, you turn your right shoulder if you're right-handed, so that you're not technically facing the court at all times. Djokovic has the strength to um, always face forward when he hits the ball, no matter whether it's a forehand or a backhand. And Rafa does it as well, but Iga does that too. And I think that she, I mean, it hey, it breaks my heart to say it, is going to basically usher in a whole new um, era for the women's game where the movement just becomes a whole different thing. I've noticed her doing it. Sadly, I've noticed Emma doing it. I don't think Bianca does it too much, but I think that with Iga, it's very difficult to get her not facing the net at any point in time. So she's never not in control, if that makes any sense. So I just wanted to add my two cents in for Iga and why she's so amazing. And I don't like her, but actually, that's a good analysis. I, I appreciate like she's up front. That's that's an incredibly astute um, analysis because it helps with recovery. It really does, um, yeah. And yeah, because you, you're you're not you're not allowing that um, what would be the outside foot um, on the back hand um, if you're right handed, which is the, the left. And uh, and essentially, um, that's get that's to- why so many more players hit double handed than they do single handed because you have that capacity to use the left leg as opposed to always needing to put the right leg in front to hit the backhand. Um, yes. And that's but that's why Djokovic and Nadal changed the game, and that's why they always had that leg up on Federer when it came to that movement out wide to their backhand side. And I think that she's just her coaches obviously have done a very good job of watching and seeing what the men are doing and. You know, it's paying off for her. Well, I mean, I would add, um, you know, Venus and Serena to. Do that you think um, of of hitting those? Oh yeah, I mean, definitely okay. Serena, probably Serena more than. But Venus. in terms of sliding, um, hitting. Do you think? I don't think that I obviously really see, saw them slide on that left leg. Oh well, yeah, no, sliding is is never going to be <laughs> Serena's uh, or Venus's thing. <laughs> but as far as not allowing your body to get too far out of those sidelines. So that you can recover quickly, I think. I think Serena. I think Serena does it does it really well on that backhand side, um, and having the upper body strength to muscle those balls back across court without, you know, having to use as much leg. In her prime, I would agree with that. Well, but I unfortunately, mean, yes, yeah, not really. Um, unfortunately, with Jay, Jay, not you walking up on stage and not even introducing yourself and saying hi. The listeners have no idea whose voice this is. I'm hi, Jay. So sorry. Hi, everybody. Um, my name is Jay E. Dubois, and I am a frequent flyer here in Tuned Into Tennis with Miles David on the, uh, Clubhouse. Thanks, I appreciate that. I don't know if I, I don't know if I've ever even said tuned tuned into tennis during this conversation. So thank you for reminding me to to, to plug my own stuff. Um, well, you know, Jay, since you're on stage and you're our resident uh, Novak Djokovic fan, Novak Djokovic lifted his first title of the year, of the season uh, in Rome. So um, I'm, I'm interested to know, I know I, I know you said you wanted to do some more analysis of the final before you kind of gave your takes, but um, I'm, I'm also interested to hear where you are and where you think Djokovic's game was this, this, uh, this fortnight, because he didn't drop a set. He was really... 
rarely pushed. I think the match that only the match that pushed him on paper the most was the match against Felix Auger Aliassim, which was interesting because a lot, of, a lot of us here didn't think that would be much of a matchup. Um, so I'm interested to to hear what you think about uh, Novak Djokovic in his form. Jay, take it take it away. I mean, uh, you know, this is this is typically you know where he starts to peak during the the clay season. Um, I think this was what number six for him in Rome. Yeah, it's, it's, so, it's six um, three, so half a dozen. Yeah, so so yeah, so this is this is. I mean, this is on par for for Novak. Um, do I do I go into it with a with a whole whole lot of confidence that he's a shoe in to get to the final of of the French? Um, I, I can't say that I do. Um, just because of you know the lack of matches that he had in the first quarter of the year. Um, but I do think it's good for him. I think it's good for his confidence, and I think it's good for you know his timing, his movement. Um, I think, and a, a lot of men, I think, can take a lot from this, uh, this, this Madrid and Rome. Um, I think it was good that he got to see Carlos, um, in Madrid. Um, I think that it was good that he got to play against you know the players that he has had some tough matchups with you know before with with Pupa. Um, you know, so I I think. I think it's good for him, but I don't know if we're at the place where I can think that he's a shoe in for the final because I do think his side of the draw will be stacked, um, and I think he's gonna he's gonna have to work to win it. He's not gonna be able to have these lapses and get to, you know, having to win seven five or seven six. I think he's gonna have to be very diligent with his with his taping and keep those early rounds short um, because it is best out of five, and I. Don't know if he's going to have the match toughness and the the stamina to to weather you know seven you know hope five setters or, or even you know four or five setters and I think um, you know there's definitely going to be players like Alcaraz Felix now who who feel confident going against him um, and Medvedev may be back so yeah but happy to see him win. Medvedev does uh, get back on the clay courts after a long. Um, uh, time off the courts dealing with a hernia like we've talked about before um he plays in geneva this week but i i, I appreciate um that perspective on Djokovic. you know i tried my best and people that listen to my podcast and you all in here know that me and Djokovic hardly ever see eye to eye but i found myself today i think i even tweeted as much that i really would like to be more appreciative of where we are in men's tennis because I'm because I, I do realize that what Djokovic is doing, he just won his 1000 match in Rome. He's in rare air, and I, I, I the, the fan of sports and the fan of tennis in me wants to be able to clap for him, but then I also kind of wake up and I realize some of the, the things that he that he does off court and the way that he goes about his tennis on court, it not being that entertaining to me, makes me want to shy away. But even today, I, I found myself on YouTube watching a compilation of all of his uh, match points for all 20 of his majors, and I'm just like... <sighs> Apparently, there is something special that this that this guy brings to the sport. I unfortunately can't find myself wrapped up in it, but it's it's nice sometimes to take myself out of being consistently shady to that man and just appreciate what he is bringing to the sport because the I, I, I do find myself if there is one thing that I can say I appreciate 
is his lockdown mode, and he he showed his lockdown mode in the final against Tsitsipas in the uh, tiebreak they played. He showed his lockdown mode against Kasparud from the very beginning. Like I don't even think he started off that match with more. I don't know if he even had more than ten unforced errors in the last. Let's just put it like this. I don't know if he had 20 unforced errors in the last two matches he played. And that's something to really kind of, you know, clap your hands at. So I will give him that. You know, he's not my favorite player. But um, I, 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 I do see how it's good for the game to have him back uh, to a form where he's not just all over the place in the likes of uh, Dan Evans and uh, Laszlo DeJerry or... What's that guy that beat him in Dubai? Uh, Yuri Vesely. Yuri Vesely. Like, I think those are great wins for those players, but it does set up for an interesting French Open if he's playing well. And then also, if somebody beats him now, which I, you know, just as who I am, I'd love to see somebody take him out in a very, a very, either a very dominant fashion or a very um, prolonged, dramatic fashion. If they do beat him now, it's not going to be the 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 excuse that it would have been last week, week before that. But he's searching for his form. It, it'll be more well they beat a Djokovic who is at his best or pretty darn close to it. You know? Yeah, I hear that. Um, I think um, I don't know. I don't think he's gonna win the French, but I also don't think anyone. Yeah, I think when he if he loses, I don't think it's going to be against one of the faves. Like, I, I think it'll be like a surprise uh, player. I don't think it'll be like Zverev or Felix or like a Berrettini or something like that. I mean, it could be, but I don't know. I just feel like they, a lot of those players don't seem to like step up or or they don't seem to believe that they can beat them just like you know Sitsipas today um so I don't think it'll be someone who uh overcomes them that that is expected to I think it'll be someone um like outside of the top eight Musetti maybe did you say Musetti Brandon yeah I would like to see that matchup again. I don't. I mean, you know, the 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 tennis gods usually give Djokovic a little bit of wiggle room, so I doubt Musetti's even going to be on the same half of the draw as him. But if it, you know, if it happens, it happens. I wouldn't be mad at it. I definitely would, would not be mad at it. Third round, please. <laughs> um, let me let me scoot over to this men's draw because we were talking about the men's, and I didn't even have the draw up. I just went straight into Novak Djokovic. Um, is there anybody else besides Novak Djokovic on the men's side that somebody had a thought or an opinion or something they wanted to throw into the roundtable about? Um, I think outside of Djokovic, it's kind of Sitsipas and Zverev in terms of favorites. I mean, I would definitely throw in Denis Shapovalov too, especially really? after he had the melt. Yeah, especially after he had the meltdown. Favorite in, think, and especially like after the meltdown, I think in his first round match, how he was able to come back from that and then just play really great, inspired clay court tennis. I definitely think that maybe he could be one to watch at the French Open. And overall, he had a really good Rome campaign. 
he lost to Casper Rude, I'm, I'm, if I'm reading that correctly. Yeah, he lost to Casper Rude 7-6-7-5. Or Casper Rude beat him 7-6-7-5, which is respectable. Uh, Shapovalov took out uh, Bazlashvili. He was the number 13 seed. He took out Sanego, which was that um, that dramatic match where he yelled out to the crowd some expletives. Then he beat Bazlashvili. And I guess this is a good segue in talking about Nadal. Um Nadal uh, lost to Shapovalov 6-2 in the third, but for large portions of that match, he was definitely struggling uh, physically with his foot, like to the point where he was leaning over and kind of just grimacing after every point, not really putting much on his serve. Um, and then after afterwards in the press conference, he said he said as much. He was he was pretty transparent. The fact that he knows he has this foot injury, he's everybody's known of it since. Um, since before he was really prominent on the tour is that that he's 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 worn certain orthopedics and 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 been able to manage it but unfortunately the past mm, since since the french open last year it's been a problem for him thank god he was able to kind of push back push through it at the beginning of this year and start the season off the way he did um because it was really something that he didn't expect but to see him kind of go through that Shapovalov match the way he did. As a, as an Adal fan, as, as long as I've been one, it definitely it definitely stung to watch that. I'm interested to see where you guys uh, like, what do you got, what do you guys uh, how, how do you guys intake the, the way he lost to Shapovalov, if that makes sense? Um, uh, it's tough. Uh, I think what's scary for me with Rafa is that I don't know if it's better or worse that he's in that that was in a best out of three set. Like that's what's uh, that's what's making me like okay. There's been a few matches where you know you've had the first set and it looked like you were doing pretty well in the second, and then all of a sudden you're in the third and you look pretty tired and hampered. And I'm just wondering if this like. Uh, inability to kind of finish a full three-set match without looking like you're drained out your mind is going to be something that uh, follows into the French. I mean, the good thing is that there will be, again, with Grand Slams, he'll have the day off. So maybe that will help him if he has like a tough match that he can uh, have the day off. But if you're not lasting like to that third set, I don't I don't know. I but I mean Nadal's Nadal has countless it's been countless times when Nadal's came come into the French looking like, uh, no, this is gonna be the one where he doesn't do what he always does and then like he shows up and it's like, oh well, never mind. You know, I wish I wish we were able to. I mean, this is this is kind of unfair because this is what the whole role to roll on Garros is about. But sometimes I wish you could just take tournaments for what they are as face value instead of like having them lead up into the French Open or in, into a Grand Slam. But I mean, it's kind of tough not to link with what happened in Rome to what could possibly happen at the French Open. I think a lot of what we saw in Rome is going to be a precursor to what happens at the French Open. So sometimes I wish it could be yeah. independent, like a tournament is is just that tournament. But yeah. when it comes to the when it comes to like specifically a sur- a surface as intric- as intricate as clay, and then the lead up tournaments to it, it's kind of hard not to make that connection. Yeah, I mean, I think even like for Rafa in previous years, 
he's always had the foot injury. So that was just something that he knew that he could deal with. And he played all the tournaments and won them. I think the interesting factor for this year, he had an injury that he had never had before. He had a stress injury in his rib. I mean, he should have been out for maximum like six weeks, but then he came back in Madrid, played the matches, and then already had to turn around and play in Rome. So if you're thinking like, yeah, I just had an injury injury in my rib and I've never had it before, naturally, you would just think like, okay, I'm going to give myself the maximum amount of time to be able to peak for, you know, the second biggest slam of the year. But instead, he came back because his game naturally needs more match play. So, I mean, you could kind of look and be like, he he probably screwed himself a little bit playing the extra tournament and now putting himself in jeopardy for Roland Garros and thinking like, okay, how is my body going to react? How is my foot going to react? How is everything going to be? I mean, I think the extra days off will help him, but I think there is just going to be that lingering thing like, okay, yeah, I can't really last in three set matches as I was in previous years or even the beginning of this year. So it's always the case that it's hard to beat Rafa in best of five, but if you really can't even trust yourself going in three sets, the prospect of having to potentially come back, let's say from two sets down and try to win three more sets. Yeah, that is mentally taxing, especially as you're getting older and you're not, let's say 26 or so, you know that you can just rebound and come back. So, so Angie, and I'm asking this question to everybody, I'm looking at the quarterfinalists in Rome, and they are as follows. Djokovic, FAA, Shapovalov, Rude, Sinner, Tsitsipas, Christian Garin, and Sasha Zverev. Would y'all be interested in the quarterfinals of the French Open looking exactly like that? Maybe one or two names being switched with somebody else? Yeah, I like that, actually. I like that group. For me, um, Carl- yeah, Carlos. Oh, absolutely. Oh yeah, I mean, for me, you you know, I I love to see this. I love to see the top um, people on on either side, whether it's ATP or, or WTA. I love to see them gatekeep. I love to see the seeds um, that are in the top ten, top fifteen, uh, make it to that second week, make it to that that quarterfinals of of a Grand Slam, because that just means that people are doing what um, they should be doing based on the rankings. Um, and of course, you know, there's, there's, it's always great to have a dark horse here and there, um, that comes through, but yeah, I would love it to look just like this. Um, you know, uh, you know, obviously it being a grand slam, um, we're probably looking at more of this kind of being those people making it through to the uh, fourth round. Um, so, so yeah, I think, um, you know, like like Tobias said, adding Carlos, you know, adding maybe a few other names um, would would be perfect for me. Yes, I would love to see it. But I wanted to go back to something about Nadal, where I think his greatest um, kind of asset and ability, which is his uh, the unrelenting nature of how he plays and how he never gives up and how he never wants to say die. I think the thing that has been his greatest weapon in that case is now becoming um, his greatest detriment. Because I think that he should have certainly 
a not play Madrid, maybe not play Madrid and play Rome, but definitely certainly certainly not continue through that injury in um, Rome against um, Chapo. Um, so his his inability to really you know take time off or you know you know give a walkover, um, I think that's going to cause a lot of stress on him and his body. Mm-mm. He's getting up there. He's not as young as he used to be, so the recovery is going to be longer, um, and the injuries are going to be more damaging as they come. So, um, yeah, I, I, I hope um, we can see him in the second week of the French, but from the looks of it, I, I don't know. Did anybody else, and thank you for that, Jay, anybody else have any um, points they wanted to hit on in the men's draw? I know we mentioned Sissy Paz just for a second, but shout out to him for getting to another Masters 1000 final outside of Djokovic, Alcaraz, and Nadal. Um, even with winning in Monte Carlo, semis of Madrid, and finals of Rome, um, he's kind of like, I, I think he's odds makers fourth uh, fourth most likely to lift the Roland Garros title, and he was a set away from doing it last season. So uh, keep an eye out for Paz. I know he might not be everybody's favorite, especially with the antics and the coaching and the bathroom and the this and the that, um, but there's something about the way his game translates to clay that is it's, it's watchable for me. He's not my favorite, but it, it is watchable tennis when he's playing on the clay court, for sure. Um... Anybody else have anything else? We're, we're kind of winding down on time. I didn't want this episode to be incredibly or incredulously long. Did I use that word correctly? Jay, you would, you would, you would uh, correct me if I did. Um, anybody I, have any thoughts that they wanted to uh, drop about Rome before we kind of look ahead to the last week of play before the French Open? I was I'm looking forward say. to the grass court season. <laughs> <laughs> I was just going to say I'm happy, even though, you know, Felix kind of started, well, he's been in, in like a little funk for the last few months and like started out the clay season really bad. But these last two tournaments, I think he's made some pretty good progress. So I'm hoping that he can do something at the French. It'd be nice to see him get to like a fourth round or a quarter. Um, and he does play well, best out of three sets. Um, I mean, I mean, best out of five sets. So I think he could, that could be an advantage for him, but that's pretty much it. Him and Shap- and Shap- uh, Shapovalov, I'm pretty um, proud of making some progress after having some bad months. Agree. Agree. My, my thing with go ahead, Maha. Go ahead. At go ahead. the French, I just don't see him beating any of the top eight over five sets. I don't see any of them like losing to him. Um, him beating any of them over five to make that quarterfinal. I don't even know if Shapovalov is going to play at the French because he hasn't played in a couple of years. I think based off of the last the last time he played there, he got a really really bad call. He ended up like posting the the, the correct call on Instagram and making a big deal out of it or something along those lines. So he might just play Geneva because he's supposed to be in Geneva this week as well. He may play Geneva and and mysteriously come up with the injury after that. So we'll see. We'll see. Because he literally has not played a single tournament in Paris since then. Not the Paris indoors, not Monte Carlo, none of that. <laughs> that is so childish. I mean... <laughs> yeah, he's very immature. I, I love I, Chapeau. I, immature, but on brand at the same time. Hey, Miles. Hi. Is it safe to say that Janine was the ATP version of Rabat? Um... Yes, but I've heard a lot of people say that Geneva is actually a really nice, quaint little tournament, cool. um, yeah. and 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 city. So 
maybe for whatever reason when i when you robot should also have nice vibes too it's in the it's off the um the northwest coast of africa so i'm they should have i mean it's isn't it morocco morocco right robot robot morocco or they're like right next to each other something like that yeah, um, they should, that should have nice vibes too. It's just whenever whenever people say Rabat, maybe because of the Maria Sakari thing, or just because it's a a, a newer ish tournament, it gets like real vulture <laughs> vibes. Like, why would anybody go there? <laughs> Unfortunately, yeah, they don't get the best fields. But I will just say, like a lasting thing for me um, with Rome, I have to give out a shout out to Diego Schwartzman for becoming a Masters 1000 finalist, even though it was in doubles. Um, I just think that he maximizes his um, body and his game very, very well. So I'm just really happy to see that he was a finalist in a Masters 1000 event, even if it was with John Isner. So. Yuck. (laughs) (laughs) But go, go, Diego. Go, go, Diego. Uh, We have some some late additions to the stage in Karima and Centraven. Now, Miss Miss Karima, which we've been having a round table for an hour or so now. Where you been at? Listen, I, <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, the kid had a basketball practice that I ended up having to take him to. So I could not join in. However, I was listening when I was driving on the way back. So, um, and I had wanted to jump in just to ask Angie a question because she had mentioned that Coco might be in a cloud, just hearing all this stuff that, hey, do this, hey, do that. And I was wondering when you said for the things that she should tweak, is it just, should she go about just tweaking, let's just say one thing at a time and build that way? Or is it tweak it all at once? Because you, you were saying how she might be not feeling so confident in in the stuff that she may have been told, hey, work on this forehand this way. And she's just not confident about it. Thanks. Yeah, no problem. So really, it is the case that she should just tweak one thing because I feel like she's just in a cloud of decision making because people are trying to tell her to tweak five different things at the same time. And if you're low on confidence and you're trying to tweak a bunch of things, then it's not going to bring a positive result in any fashion. So if you just focus on one thing, like, okay, I'm going to work on my forehand technique. Then you work on your forehand technique and then you start moving to the serve. Because if you're trying to work on the serve, the forehand, and then try to make your backhand super strong and everything, then you're just combobulated in your thinking. And then you're trying to balance everything else too, like off court and commitments and stuff you kind of need to have a centralized focus so you can put your energy towards it and then allocate your energy accordingly so you're more in balance instead of feeling like you're being pulled in all directions thanks angie appreciate sure. it oh look what comes out of a nice structured round table we should do this more often <laughs> <laughs> what trying to say Maybe- I mean, I don't, the reason, well, there's a couple of reasons why I wanted to do this because one, I've never done it before. And two, uh, allegedly, according to the, um, the deep archives of tuned into tennis, this was an idea that I should have done when I was struggling to come up with podcasts earlier this year, when I took my uh, hiatus or my sabbatical. 
so again, Tobias, I don't think you were on stage when I said this, but allegedly it was your idea first that I record a space or, uh, you know, allow a space to be recorded on Clubhouse and upload it as a podcast. And now here we are. Look at that. Putting our minds together. And we behaved you know, the entire time. Look at that, too. Right? Just, uh, Miles, just He's make still sure you recording. Send the royalty check, okay? <laughs> Would you say, Tobias? <laughs> just make sure you know you mail the royalty checks. Thank you. <laughs> I will not forget the little people along the way. Oh. I would never do that. Not not that y'all are little. Not not that y'all are little. Um any any well not not any parting words. Uh I'm gonna wrap it up right here um so we can get to our, our, our version of our after party where we are a little bit less structured and say what comes off the cuff of our minds. If you're listening to this in the podcast format, uh feel free to download the Clubhouse app where we have these round table discussions. Um very often throughout tournaments, they're just a free, colorful, passionate way for us to get our tennis insight and and fun commentary out into the open and connect with people all around the world. So I want to thank you guys for taking out some time on your Sunday night to help me record this episode. It was fun. I appreciate you guys um, holding your tongues on certain topics because I heard it. I know the listeners might not be able to tell, but I for that i'm appreciative and i'm going to sign out on that one have a good night everybody